Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast dedicated to teaching you all about the wines of the world, the different grape varieties, the different regions, and the history and culture of wine. I'm here with Amanda Barnes, and um, those of you who follow me on Instagram will know that I recently wrote a review of her book, The South America Wine Guide, which I thought was absolutely fantastic, and I wanted to talk to her in person. She's been based in um, Argentina for many years, and the book is an absolutely great overview and introduction and insights into the wines of South America, not just Argentina, but Chile and Uruguay, Brazil, and other South American countries. And we're going to talk about some of the great varieties which have emerged over South America's history and are quite unique to the continent. But first of all, Amanda, can you just introduce yourself and your love of South American wine? Yeah, absolutely. It's nice to be here. Um, I moved to South America in 2009 and that's really where I kind of began my journey as a wine writer and, and learning more about wine. I always loved wine as a you know young person growing up, um, but uh, really kind of started getting into very <laughs> deeply into the rabbit hole of wine um, from moving there and spending time with winemakers and agronomists and visiting vineyards uh, and spending a lot of time in soil pits and hopping around different wine regions. And so I've been based in Mendoza since that period, um, which is the kind of heartland of Argentine wine and conveniently close to the wine regions of Chile, which are just a quick hop over the Andes uh, and write for several publications in the UK and the US and then have my own website, SouthAmericanWineGuide.com as well as the book, which was published last year. And what is it that really excites you about? I mean, South America is such a big continent, it's hard to generalize, but what excites you so much about the wines of the continent? I think my original attraction to the continent, to South America, was actually through kind of, you know, a desire to explore the culture and the travel destinations and and get to understand, um, you know, get to meet the people and, and understand a bit about the culture. South America, you can generalize in the sense that it is a very um, captivating continent. You know, there's no lack of diversity there in terms of um, incredible landscapes, um, vibrant communities and people, um, and just, you know, a really wonderful place to explore. So I was very much attracted um, for reasons beyond wine. And then when I started learning about wine, I, I really was learning in South America. So my journey in wine started you know, on a professional level in South America. So I think that kept me captivated as anyone, everyone in the wine world knows when they first start really kind of falling in love with wine, they, they very much fall in love with the regions that they're in. Um, but what's really kept me there for over a decade is the fact that the wine industries are developing so rapidly. And that's not to say that they were undeveloped by any means, but I think that the, there's a lack of inhibition in almost all of the South American wine regions. You know, there's a, there's a real eagerness to innovate, to learn, to adapt, and yet there's also a respect now, which I really enjoy, um, for its own heritage. And so I just, you know, constantly am learning new things, tasting new things, even, it, even though I'm revisiting regions, because I've been to, you know, pretty much most of them but you know it, it's constantly evolving and, and people are very passionate about that evolution and that innovation and sharing it so it is you know they are wine countries um, 
that are really interesting and fascinating to be part of. There's no no one's at stalemate, <laughs> which I think is what kind of you know keeps it really vibrant. Well, this is what's really interesting about um, these major and also less um, recognised wine countries and wine regions is that they've been established for 500 years. So there's lots and lots of history there. But at the same time, Argentina and Chile have only really emerged internationally in the last 30 years or so. So you have that real, it's almost like South Africa as well. We have that long, long history of winemaking and grape growing and some really unique characteristics to those regions. But at the same time, internationally, they've only really been discovered quite recently or re-emerged recently. And so you have these <coughs> historical particularities, but then, as you say, innovation and um, kind of that new world approach of doing something new and different and not being inhibited by regulations and too much tradition. So what we're going to talk about is part of that history is the uh, Pais Criola family of grapes. Um, so as I showed you, I have the uh, Criola family tree page open from your book and there are many different grape varieties uh, mentioned here. So I'm going to leave it to you where to start with this family of grapes. <laughs> from the bottom. <laughs> from, the, from the bottom of the family tree. Um, you know, Criolla is a term which we use, it's the same as kind of Creole, and in the Spanish sense or in the you know South American understanding of the word, it really means um, it relates to anything. It can be people, it can be foods, it can be culture, it can be grapevines. The things that are born in the Americas, native to the Americas, but with some Hispanic or Spanish descent. And so the, the kind of use of the umbrella term Criolla grape varieties is one that I've been quite keen to adopt because I believe it's a great way to kind of separate these grape varieties that first kind of spread across the continent from the 1500s and remained the stronghold until the 1900s really but it was only in the 1850s that we get this kind of second era or wave of grape varieties that in the book I generally refer to as international grape varieties. So the history of South American wine in a, in a nutshell is 1500s we get those first grape varieties um, coming in from the Spanish and very much um, largely two grape varieties, Moscatel de Alejandria and Listambrieto, which is the Spanish name and in, in Chile we know it as País, in Argentina we call it Criolla Chica, in Peru we call it Misionera, Misionegra, like there's lots of different names for that variety in particular. But from those two varieties largely, um, an entire family of native varieties were born in the Americas and South America. Um, so there we get Torrontes is probably the most famous, but we also have lots of our Pisco grapes like uh, Moyar. And then in the 1850s, that's when we start to get this new flux of immigrants and also grape varieties. That's when we get Malbec, Cabernet Sauvignon. That's when we get things like Chasselas and so like lots of a great diversity of varieties. Now, from some of those varieties, we also get Criolla varieties. So there's one in particular, which is Criolla numero uno, Criolla number one, which is a which is an interesting blend of Malbec uh, and also uh, Criolla Grande, which is a native variety that was born there. So it does get complex. <laughs> but if we start from the very beginning and the most simple, we've got these two kind of founding varieties, 
which I like to kind of call the mother and father. I know you probably shouldn't talk about <laughs> grapes in binary terms anymore, but you know, I, I always tend to kind of think of them as the, the parents of, of South American wine. And so the first, and I think probably the most important really today still, is Listan Prieto Pais, which was the most planted grape variety in South America until the 1900s and still remains incredibly important in Chile, where we've got over 10,000 hectares of this grape variety. And it, it really has kind of rapidly, you know, lost ground, unfortunately. Even 50 years ago, there were at least three times kind of more the quantity, but we still have these incredible old vines that are left. And I think from these old vines, we just get the most beautiful and interesting quality of wines. And for people who haven't tried Pais before, I kind of like to call it a poor man's Pinot Noir or something similar to kind of a Gamay. It's got a bit more rusticity than Pinot Noir. It's got, you know, a finer, it's got tannin as well. Um, not as fine as you find with Pinot Noir, but certainly not as chunky as you find with some of those um, more Bordeaux varieties. And it depends how you manage it. You can really make something that's quite juicy and, and easy to drink, or you can make something with a bit more structure. Um, and extract some of those kind of tannins that you, you do get from the skins. And so Pais really, I think, is the kind of starting point and largely one to kind of experiment with and enjoy from Chile. But you should also try some of the old vines of Pais or Listan Prieto from um, the Canary Islands. Uh, Invinate is one producer that I particularly like. Um, and then we've also got some really nice examples in Argentina, um, where we call it Criolla Chica. Uh, in particular, I try looking out for Cara, Cara Sur uh, in San Juan and Barriel. And then we get some very nice examples as well from Bolivia and Peru. Largely very small producers. It's going to be really hard to find that outside of South America, sadly. But definitely it's a great variety that you can explore. Um, lots of different countries, but you can explore almost all of Chile. Uh, through the lens of base. And of course, here in California, it's called Mission. Of course, yeah, you still, you've got some in California. I, I forget about that. And Mexico, you still have them. You have it in Mexico too. So especially in my favourite Mexican producer doing it is Bichi, also because I love their labels. They're wicked. <laughs> um, and then I know that there's been a bit more of a revival in the US as well with the Mission Grape. Um, so it is, it's a really, for me, it's a, it's a really authentic grape variety. And, and most of the wines made from this grape variety are made in a more artisanal, natural way. So, you know, it is a really interesting, it, it's unlike um, some of those international varieties, you know, like Cabernet Sauvignon widely planted, which kind of gets vinified um, in largely in a similar way. This one does also get vinified in a similar way, but the complete opposite. <laughs> of how you'd expect to kind of taste uh, those Bordeaux grape varieties. Yeah, so um, yeah, a couple of weeks ago I tasted two wines made from Pais, and both from Itata, and two wineries right next door to each other. So Pedro Pado, who's very famous for his research into terroir, and his was a very lean, slightly herbaceous, almost Cabernet Franc style of Pais, whereas um, his neighbour, Dominio del Quarzo, and the winemakers actually in Oregon as well as Chile, his was much fruitier and fleshier, fleshier and riper, completely different wines, but from the same grape variety and from two wineries right next to each other. Tell me about Itata. Well, you get, you do get a great diversity. I think what you've tapped on in terms of, Itata is one of the main regions for Pais, as is Maule, as is Bio Bio. 
And I think you get quite different expressions through all of them. Maule is the warmer region of the three, the, the most northerly. And there you typically get more structured, um, more full-bodied kind of styles of place. But you can make it in a very juicy and light and playful way. So Felipe, who's actually the winemaker of the Dominio del Cuarzo that you mentioned, he used to be the winemaker at Bouchon, um, which for me is one of the key producers of Pais in Chile today. And so even within that range in Maule, you can have more, uh, you know, structured kind of dense, deep fruited uh, Pais, or you can make light kind of more carbonic maceration Pais. But as you move further south, you do get less kind of concentration of fruit and more herbal and mineral character. So once we get to kind of Itata, we really are kind of typically depending on where you are in Atata, because it's very different also the expression from the coastal hills um, of like Guarliwe, which is quite, you know, good for, for lovely kind of fragrant, quite ethereal pais, a much cooler expression than you'll typically get in Maule. But if you move inland to like Portesuelo, which is all kind of alluvial soils and slightly warmer, there you do start to get kind of, again, those darker fruit expressions. Um, and a bit more structure and tannin to the style. And as you move further south to Bio Bio, which is even cooler, um, there you start to get those herbal characteristics come through and that slightly kind of leaner, wilder style of, of Pais. It is definitely a terroir wine. And I think also the great benefit is that so many people are producing very small plots it's a single plot, teeny tiny crew wine normally. So the expression that you get is not a blend of lots of vineyards. It's typically a very small vineyard, a small holding of less than a hectare and very, very old vines, you know, in some cases up to 200 years old. So you really are getting a very singular expression um, with those incredibly deep vine roots that are, you know, anchored in that place and less kind of impacted by vintage and, and you know, more superficial changes. So that's kind of in a nutshell how I'd explain the differences between the regions. But then, of course, you've got to take into account every winemaker and grower's decisions. And, and the vinification of Pais, we're really seeing, um, you know, lovely kind of stainless steel styles made in bins, perhaps, with that carbonic maceration, very fruity, very fresh. And then we get, you know, much more... Um, wines aimed for a bit more longevity, uh, wines in particular that can be really interesting to try, the ones that are made in Tinajas, which are the traditional um, clay amphora of Chile, um, and also wines that are made in Raulí, in Pipas, that's where the, the word pipeño, which is a, a category of, of Pais wines, comes from, uh, and they will take on this quite different aroma that you get from these Raulí wood bats, which gives you this slightly kind of more, uh, often more kind of foresty aroma because it is like a native Chilean um, beech wood. So lots of different options and it's, and uh, because the grape variety is unique or almost unique to South America, this allows that experimentation and expression of place. What about access to these old vines? Does these wines perhaps become a bit more fashionable, a bit more sought after? You just can't find 200 year old vines everywhere. Is there a, a danger of uh, running out of vines to work with? No, it's the opposite. We're still at a danger of losing these old vines. It's not fashionable enough. <laughs> it needs to be more fashionable. It deserves to be more fashionable. Obviously, there's always good 
you know, in threat, like between brackets, good terroir and bad terroir. There's always going to be better plots of old vines. It doesn't, not all old vines are amazing, of course. You know, some of them could be reappropriated for other things. You know, often people are using old vines of Pais to graft for different varieties where the actual Pais fruit doesn't perform as, as beautifully as they can find elsewhere. And I do think there's great, um, you know, there, there's a great uh, future for those old Pais rootstock as well to be grafted with things like Chenin Blanc or Semillon, which which do perform, you know, very nicely in some of these slightly kind of warmer terroirs. But I, you know, we're not we're not at risk of not having enough old vines in the sense that there's, you know, they're too few. That we've got lots of old vines. We're at the risk of losing them because they're still not. And financially viable, you know, people are not paying enough money for these wines. You know, if you were in Burgundy and having a Gamay that was over 80 years old or a Pinot Noir, you would be paying a lot more money than you are for these, you know, 100, 150 year old Pais wines. So I, I think it's the opposite. I think we should actually, you know, as consumers start kind of hopefully paying a bit more respect to these vines, creating more demand and making sure that we don't lose these incredible um, viticultural heirlooms, because that's the risk at the moment. They are still getting ripped out at an incredible rate. Um, and, you know, it's not easy to replace 100 years of history. It's, 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 it's pretty impossible. So I think, you know, the more demand we create, the more respect we give, the more likely we are to be able to hold on to some of these incredible old vines. There's no lack of old vines of both. There's just, you know, perhaps we need to create more demand so that they survive a bit longer. Well, when I was in Chile, um, the culture there was described to me by some winemakers. It's, it's all about now. It's about making money now. It's not about the long-term kind of uh, investment. And so working with these old vines is, of course, a real labour of love, which may not have the demand that it needs. You can see why producers might want to just work with international varieties, which will sell uh, very easily. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a, you know, part, part of the, part of the problem, I mean, it's a, it's an asset as well as a problem, but in Chile, you do have a lot of growers, um, and, and far fewer wineries and producers. So the reason that these old vines have survived is because they are owned by families and small, small holding, you know, they are small holdings and they've been passed down generation to generation. The problem is that now, you know, they aren't getting paid very much for these grapes. So they, you know, it's a struggle to make a good livelihood as a grower today. Um, and the younger generation don't want to be working in a field uh, for very little money. They prefer to go to the city and get a decent job in Santiago where they earn a good wage. So, you know, this is the challenge that we're facing. And it, there are a few wineries relatively who are actually, um, you know, own their grapes, especially when we're talking about the kind of pais that gets exported, the majority of them are purchasing. Um, and there are, you know, there's some really interesting kind of winemakers, you know, pushing to get together and create these associations to, to give a, a better standard price for pais, because you have to realize the history of this is that the majority of it was just bought very cheaply, less than 10 cents a kilo and thrown into bulk wines and jug wines and, and mixed with other things like, you know, Cabernet or your Tintorreras to give more colour and structure. And so actually the winemakers that are going to the growers and buying these kind of crew grapes in order to kind of make these single vineyard wines are paying a good wage. Um, but the risk, 
you know, we need more winemakers doing that, more producers doing that to really kind of guarantee um, some kind of future for, for these great varieties. There's one really cool association that's come together in the last uh, couple of years called Al Maule, which stands for kind of Alma, Sol and Maule, uh, which is a region and they're focused entirely on making pais um, and trying to keep it affordable to keep people interested in drinking these wines, especially in Chile, but very much kind of looking at, you know, giving value to these kind of pais vines and, and making sure that the wines that currently are still being sold for bulk, you know, actually start getting vinified just as pace and have a bit more economic value and, and, and cultural value too. So that's pace in Chile. Let's move back to Argentina and your family tree. So it seems like in Argentina, pace or Criola Chica has branched out into many other grape varieties. Why has that happened in Argentina and not in Chile? I think because pace did so well in Chile you know, that país, in the same way that in Argentina, Malbec's just took over, you know, Malbec's gone through fashions, but historically it was it was really widely found as well. I think I think there is a case of survival of the fittest and Criolla Chica, as in país and Chile, does really well in Chile. In, in Argentina, it's a little bit more, uh, you know, the, the bunches are smaller, it's a little bit less kind of consistent whereas some of its children, its offspring, like Criolla Grande, does really well. You get abundant crop, you get lovely big grapes, like it was a great wine for for the kind of heyday of drug wines and high consumption. And then the other kind of, the big difference in Argentina is that um, it's that offspring with Moscatel de Alejandria, which is the famous Dorantes. And that is, you know, one of the most important Criolla grape varieties in Argentina. Torrontes is actually three varieties. Um, so we've got Mendocino, we've got Riojano, and we've got San Juanino, which are all obviously relating to regions where they were originally found, but that doesn't mean that they're by any means limited to those regions today. They are grown, you know, all over. And actually the most kind of uh, sought after grape variety is, is Riojano, which is the one that's uh, more widely planted now um, because it's got those slightly more kind of you know, a bit more finesse and a very aromatic and, and, and very pretty wine, whereas the Mendocino and San Juanino can be a bit more earthy and a little bit less uh, aromatic and, and perhaps a bit flavier as well. But yes, we get a huge diversity in Argentina and we're only at the kind of brink of discovering what diversity we have. That's true for both Chile and Argentina. There's still a lot of work to be done and being done uh, into the great diversity of grape varieties that we have. You speak in the book enthusiastically about Torrentes. I'm less enthusiastic about that great variety. <laughs> so convince me and the listener. <laughs> I think, well, why are you unenthusiastic about it? Let's start there. <laughs> Lack of acidity, overly aromatic, not subtle, not that complex, very in your face. And alcohol, alcohol can be too high sometimes. But then I don't really like Viognier either, so it's, maybe that's my... Uh... <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, I think that, I think the thing is, I think, I think Torrondes is one of those great varieties that some people just instantly fall in love with. Those who love aromatic, easy drinking, not very acidic wines, you know, Torrondes is ideal. Those that want some kind of, you know, really like acid head, like 
you know, the kind of wines that as NW students we love. <laughs> there's a large, you know, there's a large area of, there's a large kind of part of the population who aren't going to be interested in the less aromatic, less kind of exuberant wines. So Torontes is definitely that. But I do think we've, you know, what's happened with Torontes is that we've seen this great kind of focus on making it a less exuberant wine. It's very easy to have a, a big floral wine and and with those kind of um, with those grape those muscat grape varieties, you can often get a bit of bitterness in the back palate as well. Um, so there has been a focus in making it a slightly more toned down uh, aromatically and a bit kind of more focused on some acid in the palate by picking earlier or picking in different runs. What's quite common with Torontes is to pick it three to five times, in fact so that you're getting that acid and citrus from the early harvest and then you're getting those lovely florals um, and more kind of volume in the mouth from your later harvest. But I would suggest then for you, because there's a Dorontes for everyone, but I would suggest for you that you try some of the Dorontes coming from the Yuko Valley, some of the new vineyards of Torontes, which have been planted in places like Altamira, really kind of look using this good, you know, between brackets again, good terroir with poor soils, which brings down its yield, cooler climate, um, and gives you a more focused, lean Torontes. So Susanna Balbo, her signature Torontes. Susanna Balbo is the queen of Torontes. She, you know, makes many and she really helped um, change the style and, and pioneer quality Torontes in Argentina. But her top Torontes, which is her signature Torontes, which actually is aged in barrel, although you never, you'd never get, you know, you would never think it's oaked. It's just purely for the, for the micro oxygenation. Um, that comes from the Yuko Valley and it, and it's really is a very elegant Dorontes. Um, you probably wouldn't recognize it necessarily as Dorontes. And of course that's high altitude, which is probably also very important for Dorontes to maintain that acidity. What is farming like in those high altitude vineyards in Uco Valley or in Salto? It must be, is it difficult or is it just that it's high altitude but quite flat? Salto and Mendoza, so the north of Argentina is a world away from Mendoza. High altitude in Mendoza, um, you know, it's a very steady, the foothills are very steady. You really don't actually, when you're stood there, it's very difficult to tell that you're moving up to altitude um, because it is a, a, a very steady kind of increase. Um, as you get closer to the foothills of the Andes. The challenges at altitude in Mendoza are um, access to water. And, and that's about it, really. Actually, apart from that, altitude is great. <laughs> so like in Mendoza, you know, planting at altitude, it's so long as you have that kind of access to irrigation water and you often need kind of wells at this stage because there just isn't enough. Um, you wouldn't get the water rights uh, to, to be irrigating from the rivers. Those are the greatest challenges. Whereas in Salta, um, and in northern Argentina, you are surrounded by mountains. You know, every direction that you look, you are surrounded by by, by very colourful hillsides. Um, so that brings its own challenges of remoteness. One of the greatest kind of challenges of a new vineyard up there, and even the existing vineyards, in fact, is that you are so kind of far away um, and so remote from, from main cities and transport lines and accessing the vineyard can be a bit more challenging, especially if you have something like a big, uh, you know, rainfall, which can happen and it can literally just wash away the roads. Um, but in terms of, you know, climatically, 
that altitude, you know, occasionally you get frost, but it isn't really, that's not the main concern. In Mendoza, you get a lot of granizo, a lot of hail. Um, that is still big. That is a big issue. But people have always been adapted to it. It's nothing new. But yeah, it's all about access to water. That's the that's the biggest kind of concern in in general in the viticulture of South of South America, at least in Chile and Argentina. Mm-hmm. And California too. It's a Pan American problem. What about Pedro Jimenez? That's not something um, unlabeled too much. But what can you um, say about it? Pedro Jimenez is like a secret. You know, like no, like it's it's so widely planted, especially in Argentina. It's, it's one of the most planted white varieties. And yet it rarely makes it onto the label. It's a bit confusing because it's nothing to do with Pedro Jimenez from Sherry, from, you know, from southern Spain. So um, it isn't that sweet. You know, it can be quite sweet. It is a nice grape to eat. It does quite well as like a table grape and, and people do um, sell it for eating as well. But at, in terms of wine, if you if you pick it nice and early, um, you can make, it's quite neutral. It's quite kind of light. It's quite... Um, it's quite a simple kind of appetizing wine. It reminds me in some ways actually of, of kind of like Palomino. And, and interestingly enough, there are producers that use traditionally Pedro Jimenez in like San Juan region was used to make sherry, to make kind of fortified wines. So there have been a couple kind of interesting new renditions of like floor aged Pedro Jimenez, which is, which is really can be quite lovely because it is more neutral and it picks up those characters quite nicely. So La Cayetana does one. They're one of my favorite producers in Argentina, um, Versacrum. And then also um, there's another one, Pedrito, which is by Finca Las Morras. Um, they make a, a very nice floor age, Pedro Jimenez. And then there's the nice kind of light, appetizing, easy to drink wines like Mariana Onofri does from the Valle, which is the north of Argentina north of Mendoza, forgive me. And then also over in Chile, we get a nice one from the Elqui Valley, um, Falernia and Mayu make some nice kind of appetizing, easy to drink Pedro Jimenez. It's the kind of wine that I'd really recommend. You know, it's an everyday wine. It's a Tuesday night wine. Have it with uh, local goat's cheese or like, you know, some nice kind of empanadas or something kind of light. And yeah, a wine not to think about too much and just to kind of enjoy with friends. So we haven't mentioned um, Malbec. Obviously, that's what Argentina is very strongly associated with. How are producers kind of facing the challenge that of promoting Argentina as not just Malbec? Because we've talked about all these different great varieties. How can um, winemakers diversify the image of Argentina? I mean, there are very few producers in Argentina that only make Malbec. I, I don't know if producers can actually do much more because they are making fascinating wines from other varieties. You know, we get we're getting a really nice kind of push on Mediterranean varieties. There are some lovely kind of Grenache, like Marsan Roussan. Like there's lots of interesting things happening. There are some beautiful white wines I'm really enjoying. You know, I think Chardonnay is I think we were seeing some beautiful mountain Chardonnays in Argentina. Some lovely Samillon as well. It's one of my favourite varieties from the country. So the wine producers are doing it. I honestly think it's probably more up to us as communicators, educators, writers, um, you know, importers, uh, merchants. We're the ones that actually have to kind of show what the producers are doing, and uh, and you know, and and allow people to kind of explore Argentina beyond Malbec, because if you go into a shop and all you've got on the shelves is Malbec, 
that's you know that's not the consumer's fault and that isn't the producer's fault either <laughs> that's the kind of middleman who perhaps isn't taking you know taking a, a risk on something beyond Malbec and and I think Malbec has proven that Argentina can make incredible wine at all different price points and so actually you know if you've got that confidence in Malbec then you know take a shot on Argentine Bonarda or you know like take a shot on some of the other you know, great varieties that your favourite producers are making. Well, my favourite wines from Argentina are Chardonnay, which kind of, um, it's hard to fit in the international scene. There's Chardonnay made everywhere. But I really think there are some outstanding Chardonnays made, as you say, from higher altitude in um, in Mendoza. Let's move away from Argentina and to um, a smaller wine producing countries, so Bolivia. So you mentioned uh, Vichio Kenya. This is a great variety, which I assume very, very few people know about. What can you say about it? First of all, Bicho Kenya. There we go. It's a tough one. It took me about a week to get my head around. <laughs> it took me several Bolivian producers going, no, Bicho Kenya. Okay, Bicho Kenya. It's hard to pronounce, but it is, yeah, it is a very unique grape variety. It is only found in Bolivia and particularly is only found in the Sinti Valley, which is where we think it was born. And yeah, it's, an, it's another native variety. It's very interesting. It can have quite kind of nice acidity. It, it, it's a bit more earthy. Again, it's a little bit more on that most of these kind of red Criollo varieties are, are light reds um, and it can be really interesting. But it, it's also really interesting because the production, the wine production of Sinta is very interesting. These are all old vines. It's a very biodiverse area. In your vineyard, you've got fruit trees, you've got herbs, you've got pepper trees. They're all growing together, often growing on top of each other, using each other as, as a, their growth structure. So you get like a very... You get a very different wine. It wouldn't. Um, I. I don't know what would happen if you took Bistro Kenya and planted it elsewhere in a in a classic VSP system. <laughs> like I, that. You know that hasn't been experimented with, but it is a Sinti wine. It comes across as a Sinti wine, and it has that lovely, you know, kind of wild, earthy character, um, layered. Um, you know, sometimes can be quite rustic because it can have quite kind of high acid. Um, and decent tannin structure, but lighter in, in kind of color and, and fruit concentration. And I love it, like, you know, but it is hard to find. You, you pretty much have to be in Bolivia to try it, but there are some producers who I think are, you know, beginning to, to try and export. Jardina Culto is, is one of them. Uh, and, you know, it, Bolivia's wines are awesome to discover, but a challenge to kind of get there, but definitely well worth, you know, for the adventurous, well worth exploring. And then moving to Peru, there's Quebranta, which is often used for Pisco. So again, a great variety, which I've certainly never encountered other than in Pisco. Um, what can you say about Quebranta? Quebranta is my favourite um, of the Criolla or Pisco varieties for wine in Peru. Along with Moscatel, that's, you know, that, that you can make some really nice wines from that too. But but it's it was kind of it's considered one of the better ones for pisco as well. But uh, but it's the one that brings the body and the structure, and it's a bit earthier. It doesn't have those high toned florals. You know, it's not the kind of it isn't the the torontel or the muscat of the group. It is it's very much one that gives you a bit more kind of mouth feel, and so that's what makes it interesting in terms of wine. It's a pink variety, 
And so you get you can get these kind of light reds or, or deep kind of rosé wines. There's only a couple of producers working with it, but the one who's really kind of championed it has been Pepe Mokiasa, who has his Mimo brand and then his also his Quebranto de Ahuanco brand. And, you know, both of those are made in a more natural style, sometimes a bit oxidatively as well. So um, you can get, you know, I, I remember the first time I tasted it, the sommelier at Central, which is a great restaurant in Lima, told me it was like the Pulsard. It was the Jura of, of Peru. And, and, and it is kind of, you know, it really does kind of resonate. And then there's a couple other producers who are working with it now as well um, as, a, as a still wine. And I think it is, again, it's that slightly kind of more earthy, interesting, you know, if you don't like Torontes, you're definitely going to like Cabranta. <laughs> Noted. And then another um, piece of grape variety mentioned on the family tree is Molyar Cano. What can you say about that grape variety? Uh, well, this is, an old, this is actually an old Spanish grape variety. Um, so this is one of the original ones that was brought over. So this isn't a native one, but it, but it largely, we find it in Peru today and it's largely used kind of more so in Pisco. I don't actually know of anyone who's making it, uh, as far as I can recall, as a single variety still wine. But again, it, it's, you know, it's one of the many, like it, in Peru, what's, I think what is interesting is seeing producers kind of look back at the, the great varieties that they have and basically no one else has and seeing what they can do with them in terms of wine. Because Peru's wine story is kind of unfair in the sense that they, they were the first kind of wine country of South America, uh, the first kind of major producer um, in the 1500s. And then the Spanish crown prohibited them from making wine several times because they, you know, they were doing too good a job and, and exporting their wine and, and you know, Spain started to get jealous of their exports. And so they, they really had this history that was completely interrupted and, and stopped and had to switch to Pisco production, um, which was the only thing they were permitted to do with their grapevines. Um, so it's really at the moment we're in this period of rediscovery of, of these Pisco varieties or Criollo varieties and seeing their potential for wine uh, as as more than just kind of their own table wine or sweet wines that they make. You know, there's a big tradition of making sweet wines with these varieties. Um, sweet in the sense that they're grape juice, which they will then add Pisco. So it's, it's um, you know, it, it's really kind of like cheap, at the table, sweet and boozy, <laughs> actually quite fun, like quite enjoyable to you know to drink mm -hmm. in the in the in the situation. But it's only in recent years that we're starting to see a refocus on the potential for still dry, finer wines from these great varieties. So I think we're still yet to see what's going to come out of Moyar, and um, definitely still yet to see what potential we have in Quebranta, in the Torontel. Like there's there's a lot that we're still kind of in the moment of exploration and the best place to taste these wines is a hundred percent in lima and i think uh, there's a lot of hard work that the sommeliers in the restaurants of lima especially central as i mentioned um and some of the other kind of top you know high gastronomy um restaurants there they've really started to kind of look to peruvian producers to buy wines locally as well as you know great international wines and there's this great camaraderie and, and relationship um, happening between the restaurants, the buyers, the sommeliers, and the wine producers. 
um, and growers and, and trying to kind of come up together and, and learn from each other and, and really kind of lift the quality of Peruvian uh, produced wine and especially with these unique varieties that they have uh, that no one else has. So, you know, a worthy, a worthy task, but definitely one that we're in the middle of and one that I think will be many years before we kind of start to see the true potential. I'm going to throw a hand grenade at you. Do you consider Pisco Peruvian or Chilean? Both. <laughs> um, but, you know, my, my Peruvian friends are adamant that Chile should never use Pisco, that they stole the, the, the name and denomination. And, you know, Chileans are a bit more relaxed about it because it's not, I don't think there is, you know, I don't think there is um, emotionally tied to the, the Pisco story. But I, you know, I, I don't see, I, I just think it's petty to argue about to argue about whether it's this or that you know I, I just think we can talk about the diversity of of brandies being made in South America and you know we can talk about the the pisco uh, made in Chile the pisco of Peru and maybe they can come up with their own unique denominations um I mean I, I just think there's bigger <laughs> bigger issues that we should be arguing about like you know water rights and and uh, you know lots of other things that are far more important than arguing about who who belongs to what but I, I do really enjoy pisco um in the right context and i particularly would recommend trying singani which is bolivia's pisco thankfully they picked a different name because it gives you a whole different perspective and it you know it is really fun to taste these to taste these spirits um and there's a whole world of south american spirits that deserve a lot more attention you know, we're so keen on mezcal and, and, and you know, looking at Mexico. And, and I hope that more people start to kind of look a bit further south and start to kind of explore the incredible spirits of South America too. I'm a big fan of rum in general and uh, South American rum too. The Venezuela, Colombia, all, all produce uh, good rums and Guiana, of course. So there's lots and lots of diversity to the drinks of South America, not just the wines of South America. So I think it's been a really good insight into these different grape varieties which have emerged in South America or which really represent the different regions and different countries of South America and make them distinctive from countries elsewhere in the world. And as Amanda says, we as consumers and wine students should be uh, drinking these wines and buying these wines and promoting these wines as well. So there are some fantastic uh, wines to be tried. Pais is probably the one that you're most likely to find in a good wine shop of the wines that we have discussed, but this gives that um, context in uh, with, it, with other South American grape varieties and wines. So thank you, Amanda. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. I hope to do this over a glass of Pais at some point soon. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. And uh, just once again, highly recommend your book. If you want to know about South American wines, this is the book to have. <laughs> thank you very much. Cheers.